from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. In the recent paper you wrote about this, you quoted the Illinois Court of Appeals where they lamented, quote, the charade that has become the Batson process where prosecutors have a, quote, series of pat race-neutral reasons for exercise of peremptory challenges. People have figured out how to game this system. Do you think this is just a charade at this point? I, I think the standard that Batson set out where it has to be the reason and, and not what an objective observer would say um, is just, it's, it's a bad standard. I'm Sarah Fenske. Earlier this week, the criminal trial of a pair of former St. Louis cops began in downtown St. Louis again. And again, the judge impaneled an all-white jury. Former officers Dustin Boone and Christopher Myers are charged with beating a colleague who was working undercover. The jury deadlocked on the first trial. The officers are white, and the detective that they beat is black. Their their guilt or innocence will be decided by a jury of 12 white peers. That's even though federal law has barred race-based discrimination since 1875. And joining us today to explain how we got here and why is Peter Joy. He's the Henry Hitchcock Professor of Law and Director of the Criminal Justice Clinic at Washington University School of Law. Peter, welcome. Uh, Thank you. It's a pleasure being here. So, Peter, a lot of people were surprised when a first all-white jury was seated in this case a few months ago. And then it happened again this week. Did that come as a surprise to you? Yeah, I wish I could say it did, but it really didn't. Um, I was called out for federal court jury duty in 2015. And I looked around the room of the jury pool, and I think I counted three people of color in the entire room of about 50 potential jurors. And uh, so if you start with a jury pool that has very few people of color, you can oftentimes end up with an all-white jury. So people who don't know as much about how our court system works here, they might be surprised. St. Louis City itself obviously has a much different racial composition. What's all covered by the federal court here? Well, it's the Eastern District of Missouri. Missouri. So it, uh, you know, basically goes over to the river and then it goes north. I I think it may go uh, as far as Hannibal. Uh, and then it goes south, and it goes pretty far south. So we're talking about a big area, and you're right, there's the city of St. Louis, which is very diverse. You have a couple pockets of diversity in St. Louis County, but there's not a whole lot of diversity throughout the entire district. So this jury, the bigger pool, comes in relatively white to begin with, and then uh, defense attorneys were able to strike some of the black jurors. Tell us how this works. Actually, there's one step before you even get to the jury people who show up, which is all of the summonses to show up for jury duty that people don't respond to. You get a jury questionnaire, and if you don't turn it in, and I, you know, I don't know that there's ever been a study in the Eastern District of Missouri, but they've done studies in the Chicago area and the Detroit area, and they find that uh, about somewhere around 20 to 30 percent of the summonses don't even reach people who live in low-income areas, and that's because people who are low-income often move around quite a bit, and so they don't get delivered. And when they do get delivered, if you don't have a job where you're going to get a day's pay, 
for being on a jury. Instead, you get the 10 or $15 that you're going to get there. You know, a lot of people say, I, I have to feed my family, so I'm just not going to show up. So, you know, you, you start with what is not quite a diverse group to begin with, and then it really gets diluted by all the uh, summonses that can't get delivered in all of the questionnaires that people just don't return. Hmm. I, w- I wasn't even thinking about that step, but yeah, so that <laughs> changes then the pool of people in the room. Once you get them into the room, that's when the attorneys on both sides start to uh, exercise their freedoms here. How do they get rid of jurors once they're in that room? <laughs> right. Well, there are two ways. One way is for cause. That is, the person can't be fair. And, and most of the time, through questioning, if you're going to strike somebody from, for cause, you basically have to get them to say, well, I'm not sure if I can be fair. And, and there are ways of doing that. Uh, you know, so for example, um, it might be somebody who is the victim of a terrible crime, and they're sitting potentially to be a juror in a criminal case, and they might you know, have a hard time. Or in a case like this, it could be somebody who uh, maybe they had uh, bad encounters with the police in the past. Sure. Uh, and so they have reservations. But after you deal with the four cause strikes, there are peremptory strikes, which are strikes that you could do for any reason as long as under the U.S. Constitution, as it's been interpreted by the Supreme Court, that the motivation isn't racially motivated. But that has to be the reason. Not a contributing reason has to be the primary reason. So it's easy to come up with excuses that sound like it's not race-based. I I, want to point out that there are some states where the state uh, Supreme Courts have interpreted for state court cases a different standard, which is would a reasonable person think one of the factors was race-based? And that totally changes the dynamic of jury selection. I bet, but that is not the standard in federal court. Uh, not in federal court, not in Missouri, and not in a majority of the states for state court cases. And so race is the one factor that you can't just strike people for. You could just strike somebody for being a man. You don't have to try uh, well, to couch uh, that uh, in something else. Well, uh, Actually, gender has fallen into it, religion, um, you know, so basically if you think about the typical uh, classes of of discrimination, those are going to be areas you have to steer away from. So defense attorney Scott Rosenblum, he's one of the top defense attorneys in town. He knows how to play this game. He said that, you know, he's getting some heat for striking black jurors. He noted that prosecutors move to strike most of the jurors who are coming from outside the metro area because these people are more likely to be conservative, more likely to be law and order. Uh, Can prosecutors do that? Yeah, I mean, actually, you know, striking somebody because you think that they're likely to be more conservative or more liberal, that's perfectly okay. Um, You know, you you can strike people because you don't like the color of their eyes. (laughs) That's going to be okay. Wow. Okay. So there's a lot of reasons you could strike people. What happens, though, if the other side starts to suspect, hey, they're actually doing this for reasons of race? Right. They raise what's called a Batson objection. And, and then, you know, there's a sidebar with the judge. And they, uh, you, you say, Your Honor, I believe uh, this strike, uh, peremptory strike has been racially motivated. And then the burden shifts to the person who's did it to justify it. And then they give the reasons. And then the trial judge makes a decision. So uh, if they gave a reason, like, I don't like the eye color, they could be in some hot water there. Yeah, if, if, if that was the reason, especially because then, you know, if 
it goes back to the person who raised the Batson objection. They go, well, Your Honor, there are eight more potential jurors that have the same color eye. You know, why aren't they being? You know, and, and so some of the reasons that, that have been used both by prosecutors and defense lawyers, but mostly by prosecutors when it comes to Batson is, well, the person's too old or the person's too young or the person lives in a high crime area or the person, you know. So there are all these lists, but then, you know, you, you have to really have have something I think a little bit more particularized to justify it for the judge. But the judge still has a lot of discretion. So in this case, uh, Scott Rosenblum, the defense attorney, he struck somebody because uh, their cousin was in prison and he was still in touch with this aunt as, as she was dealing with the sadness of having this cousin incarcerated. This is something that the judge let in. Does does that make sense? To, uh, let him go ahead and strike that juror. Well, well if, it, you know, under Batson, uh, you know, that that would be a, a justifiable reason because you could say, well, you, you know, as long as there weren't, say, white jurors who had the same situation that the defense lawyer uh, didn't strike. Um, so because it has to be the reason, not a contributing reason, uh, you know, I, 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 you know, I really went and second-guessed the judge. Okay. So the judge may well have made the right call on this, but there's still an impact that comes. Yeah. I mean, we have a pool that has very few black jurors. Those black jurors are getting struck. Uh, what have you found out as, as you've mm. studied this about racial discrimination in juries? Okay. Well, you know, a lot of districts and uh, state courts have been a lot more aggressive about getting diverse jury uh, panels to begin with. So they've done studies. Uh, there have been instances where some federal judges looking out and seeing that, gosh, I'm going to end up with an all-white jury, has adjourned the case for a couple days to bring in more prospective jurors. And that's definitely within a district court judge's uh, ability. And so, you know, a lot of judges uh, are are getting more attuned to this. And, and some, so some judges, federal court judges, are taking a look at, well, we're getting a really low response rate, say, for, for people in the city of Chicago or Detroit. And then what they did is they examined why is that and what can we do to remedy that, to make the addresses better, to try to track down and make sure people get the summonses to begin with. So the judges do have the ability. Now, a lot of these programs have been because all the judges in the you know, in, in the district have agreed on it. But an individual federal judge has that authority if the judge wants to do it. Interesting. Are you aware of any programs here in the Eastern District of Missouri where they've been trying to work on this? Um, you know, I, I don't know of any. It, there may be. If so, uh, the, they haven't been really made public. I do know that uh, the Eastern District of Missouri, like now a majority of uh, courts, no longer solely rely on the voter rolls. You know, they use people who have state-issued IDs and people who have driver's licenses. Um, but again, you know, there, there are uh, a lot of outreach efforts that can be done, uh, and I just am not aware of that being done here in the Eastern District of Missouri. Hmm. So then we're kind of stuck with Batson, absent efforts like that. Um, is this something where courts of appeal are sometimes overturning, saying, hey, this all-white jury came back with this verdict. This jury is tainted because of that. Well, you know, it, it's interesting. Yes, it, it's happened. Uh, and it, though it, that right of appeal is only if the defendant gets convicted. Uh, so if it's a prosecutor, you know, it, as we it, have it, in this case, that's right. It it ends with the trial judge's ruling, and that's it. 
Um, and, you know, so it, it's interesting. Most of the time, Batson is an issue uh, when it's the defendant. But in this instance, it, uh, you know, at least the public perception is that's really the issue and it's the prosecutor. So you, in the recent paper you wrote about this, you quoted the Illinois Court of Appeals where they lamented, quote, the charade that has become the Batson process where prosecutors have a, quote, series of pat race-neutral reasons for exercise of peremptory challenges. People have figured out how to game this system. Do you think this is just a charade at this point? Well, I, you know, I wish I could say it wasn't. I, I think the standard that Batson set out where it has to be the reason and in, in not what an objective observer would say um, is just it's it's a bad standard. And there have been a lot of calls for different things, maybe do away with peremptory challenges. Or uh, I remember having a student once who wrote a paper about a peremptory inclusion, sort of let the defendant and the prosecutor get to say certain jurors sit unless the other side could strike them for cause, you know, to basically remove that peremptory. So there are a lot of different ideas out there, but I think until the Batson standard itself gets changed like the state of Washington, where if race is a contributing factor, if that's what an objective observer would conclude, until that happens, I, I think we're going to continue to have problems with Batson. Is this something where the courts would have to change it, or could Congress take this on and, and shape how these things are handled? You know, that's a great question, uh, it, it, and I've been thinking about it in terms of really needing the U.S. Supreme Court to do it, but there may be a congressional fix, uh, though, you know, then we run into the problem of, of getting, you know, bipartisan agreement in, in the U.S. Congress, and it's not something we should hold our breath about. Hmm. So I want to address one other thing. Uh, there's a quote that I dug up from an old James Bond novel. It says, once is happenstance, twice is coincidence, three times is enemy action. I had this quote stuck in my head as I was thinking about this. You know, we're, we're maybe at the level of coincidence for Scott Rosenblum and, and his fellow defense attorneys. Maybe not. Maybe they've crossed over into they're clearly looking for an all-white jury here. If they're doing that, is that unethical? on their part to have this as a strategy? Or is that just the necessary zealous defense of these clients who have behaved in ways that, that might shock and appall normal people? Well, you're going to find people arguing both sides of that question. Uh, I, I think there's a strong case that if that's what the motivation is, not, not just a strong case, uh, an excellent case, if that's the motivation and then they lie to the court, oh, no, Your Honor, it wasn't because of race, then they definitely violate an ethics rule because you have an obligation of candor to the tribunal, to the judge. And so if you lie to the judge about what the real reason is, now the unfortunate thing is nobody gets inside somebody's head to see, you know, are they really lying. Uh, and, you know, people are good at, at self-rationalization about things that you do. But like I said, I think you'd find people arguing both sides of that. Interesting. So this case, uh, we now have another white jury, all white jury sat in this case. The last time this happened, there was an alternate juror who was a, a black woman who ended up getting ushered into this panel because there was a, um, one of the jurors had some family reason that they had to quit. I understand that cannot happen in this case. The alternates are also all white. Do you think we're going to see the same verdict here? I, I, I'm not going to second guess it, but I will tell you this, and uh, this is something statistically if you look at it, that when you have a case retried, 
Uh, prosecutors oftentimes do better than they did the first time when you get a hung jury. And that's because now the prosecutor really knows the extent of the defense case. Uh, the prosecutor in, in this case, Carrie Costanton, she's an excellent prosecutor. Um, and so I wouldn't take, make any bets on this. Yeah, and I think another point is there's even more evidence the prosecutors have this time that they did not have last time. Some racist text messages, some of these things. It's going to be very interesting to see how this one plays out. Uh, yeah, I definitely agree with that. Well, Peter Joy, thank you so much for joining us today and, and sharing your insight. Oh, well, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.